So, how's it going? <laughs> I hate everything. No, you don't. You just got to do some incredible things. I did. I, I, I did. And then, like, we, like, ended. And then we came back and we're like, we should do an intro. And then we fucked it up so bad. And now here we are. So... To be fair, Aaron said let's do an intro, but I heard outro, so now we're on our third take because I recorded a co- an outro conversation while Aaron vamped an intro, and guess what does not work? <laughs> so that said, Aaron just got to meet... Well, I got to meet Molly Maeve Egan... And yes. then I also got to meet her sister, Tony Award-winning Daisy Egan. Um, who, also known like, as the other Egan. Yes, also known as the other Egan. Uh, we promised Molly we would say that. Um, but <laughs> also, like, um, tonight has been a fucking dream for me. And so we can't ruin it now. So please stop ruining it, Paul. Thank you. I'm going to try. Um, so tonight we, um, recorded this interview that you're about to hear with Molly Maeve Egan, um, as part of her project that she did with Lizzie Hirschberger, um, a book called Behind Blue Curtains. It is the survivor story of a girl who grew up in an Amish community, um, and, so, a girl named Lizzie Hirschberger, who is the co-author. Right. It is her, it's her memoir. Yes. Thank you. Um, who subsequently was raped by members of the community and shared her story in an incredible and powerful way. Um, yes. And as Aaron and I mentioned multiple times in our interview, it is an incredibly written book. I encourage you to go out and buy it immediately. Um, no, please. Like, we're gonna put it on our Instagram, like, with a link. Um, go, like, we don't make any money from the link. Just go to the link, buy the book. It's really good. Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through it. It's uh, incredible. Like, we'll talk about how it translates from memoir to like literary fiction, like, incredibly well. Um, you will feel like you're reading like a fiction book, even though you're reading something that is nonfiction. So yeah, absolutely. Um, And so that said, this is Lifetime Sentence and I'm Paul. And I'm Aaron and we've done this like 400 times. So here we go. And we're about to introduce you to our new friend and welcome anytime she wants to join us co-host. Anytime. Um, future and always member of the lifetime sentence brunch bunch yeah molly mave egan um so our our brunch bunch is growing um it now consists of you remind me remind me everybody who is in the brunch bunch whether they know it or not aaron oh it's you and me and um molly mave egan and also daisy egan patrick hines jillian pensavalli um amanda jacobson from wine and crime Em and Christine from And That's Why We Drink, um, all of our friends from our, like, like random group chat, and, uh-huh. um... Laura Dern. Uh, Keith, Keith, uh, Laura Dern, Meryl Streep, and Keith Morrison, so... Right, so, um, our next meetup is, um, well, you'll get the, you'll get the notification sent to your inbox if you're part of it, so, um, just be <laughs> looking for that! 
<laughs> so without further ado, here is our interview with Molly Maeve Egan. I guarantee you will love it. We had so much fun. We we had the best time and you will too. All right. Tonight we have a really um, special event we've been teasing on our um, the last couple of episodes. And so tonight we'd like to welcome Molly Maeve Egan to our podcast. Hi, guys. Yes. So thank you uh, so much. She's already choked up because she's so right. excited. <laughs> she's heard great things about our fans and she's just I'm... overwhelmed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, so, um, Molly, the, your people reached out to us. It feels so fancy to say your people. Like, I don't even know what that world's like, but. No, I just um, want to be like, your people reach out to our people, but really our people is just us. Like, <laughs> This is the first person I've ever had. And it's, it's, there's a story behind it. It's, I'm not as fancy as it appears, but I love it. I love having somebody email me. Don't forget you're this. Here are some notes. So I have a person like that, but you're looking at her and then I also have to remind her to remind me the day of, because I have ADHD and so she has to put in her day planner to remind me. (laughs) So the thing is, you just need a partner in crime at all times. That's the peeking behind the curtain. He's not lying. He's literally (laughs) not lying. That's a good friend. Listen. We've made it two years without killing each other, so that's sure. the secret. Well, the thing is, like, um, me and Paul's wife, Dr. Sarah, we just gang up on him until he just remembers everything we make him remember. That's oh, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. That's Between so me and Dr. Supportive. Sarah, we get everything done. <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, yes, yeah, so your people reached out and said that you um, – were a co-author on this book that Aaron and I have been reading that we were talking earlier that we can't put down. I literally um, can't, like, as much as I want to talk to you, I'm like, as, as soon as this is over, I'm going to finish this book because it's so good. Oh my gosh, thank you. Ugh, I love it. And I think even before I get into the content, because I do want to get into the content of the book, um, I think uh, I know for sure that it hits a lot of what our listeners really like. I mean, we talk a lot about survivor stories. Um, I consider myself a writer and I don't know that I could do what you do. You mentioned on your website that you are a ghost writer and that you can write like that you write in someone else's voice. Tell me what that process is like getting into someone else's mindset. Like how did you write with, um, with Lizzie to get this story? I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been waiting for somebody to ask. This is probably the hardest thing I've ever done professionally. um, And in some ways, personally, Uh, I did not set out to be a ghostwriter. I'm classically trained as an investigative reporter. My first paid job was literally as a police beat reporter. And I was the first female in this 100-year newspaper's history to be the police beat reporter. Um, And we love that. Like, let the women do the work always. Right. Well, in the editor's words, he said, you'll be a pretty fish and may, you know, we need to shake things up. And so I went out with my lips pursed and I was really good at it. And one of the things that taught me was to see details and how to interview people. Um, 
I did some crazy interviews, but, and also my background, just be, being from Brooklyn, um, I think I have a skill, which is I can t really talk to almost anybody and make them feel comfortable. And that means a guy on the, living on the street to, uh, you know, a businesswoman. So I think that sort of naturally led to this project. Um, it, in the end, it was really perfect for me. And I only started calling myself a ghostwriter midway through the project with Lizzie Hershberger. Oh, that's awesome. So it kind of helped you realize your own, your own talents. I love that. Well, originally I was that's just amazing. going to edit. Just... Oh. <laughs> She's going to let you go on. Originally you were going to go on to edit. Yes. I originally I was just going to edit 40,000 words about what it was like to grow up as an Amish girl. And it wasn't until some major events in Lizzie's life caused her to come forward about this crime. And we got to the point in her life where she turned 14 and the rape happened, where the book took a completely different turn. Um, because she started remembering all these details, as did I. And that was sort of how the book turned into this. Um, and she ended up coming forward, was through the process of writing. She realized there was so much more to write about than just what kind of dresses Amish women wear to church. So the original intent of this experience was not how it ended then. Right. It was just, a t that's so interesting. Yeah. So when we hit the period of time in Lizzie's life, when um, she went to work for a man who ended up raping her, uh -huh. Lizzie hit a wall mm -hmm. and abandoned the project. And about six months later, she called me up and there had been a personal tragedy in her life. And also she had decided to come forward about those rapes. And it was the process of us talking about her memoir in general that sort of prompted a lot of this to happen. So, you know, the writing process can be a healing process. And this taught me that. Um, and that's when she decided 100%. to move forward, she changed. I mean, she became much more confident and she started sharing more and she started remembering more. And then we all ended up at his sentencing together. Um, I was there. I helped her write her victim impact statement. So that tells you a little bit about how she started calling me her ghostwriter. And I ended up really writing, um, a lot, a lot of her story that she didn't prepare. She wasn't prepared to write originally. That's, that's incredible. And to get um, to get credit on the cover says a lot about how much you contributed, but also your relationship with Lizzie, because I know many ghostwriters don't get, they might get an acknowledgement, but often we don't see a co-author or a co-writer or the journalist who comes in to help piece things together acknowledged mm -hmm. on the cover. So that says a lot about how you're able to work together. So I really love that. Yeah. Um, so Absolutely. you mentioned helping write her victim her impact statement um and you have a couple of those listed on your website is that something you have done more of is that something you had done before you had worked with her tell me about that no so i wrote uh lizzie's victim impact statement at the sentencing of the man who appears in the no in the memoir right 
that to me was such a personally gratifying experience. I, I get emotional just thinking about it because I have my own case that happened 30 years ago and I'm never going to see justice. I've tried. And so, no, I was not raised Amish. I was raised by revolutionary parents in Brooklyn, New York, but I could channel what I wanted to say into the impact statement in the voice of this Amish girl. Um, and that was really the turning point of the book. And then I started working with an organization um, by former plain women to help others get out, to literally escape from these communities. It's called Never Stand Alone. And I help women write victim impact statements for court because honestly, it's one of the most effective tools of change in our society for this for this issue to have to watch a judge tear up which i'm sorry is not in the book um but to watch him tear up because a woman is reading an impact statement is pretty profound and they can make a difference oh absolutely yeah um now forgive my ignorance you mentioned um plain women what what does that mean so plain women are Amish, Mennonite, or other conservative, conservative Anabaptist uh, okay. people. So they're in these very sheltered in environments. And by law, they do not have to, they do not have the right to go past eighth grade in right. their education. That was Wisconsin, Wisconsin right. versus Yoder, um, which basically is, puts their right to freedom of religion above all else. And so not only are they sheltered from society right. by media and all that, but they're also sheltered from law enforcement in many cases. Right. Um, they have to wear head coverings. They're supposed to be seen and not heard. Um, it's, it's a lot worse than that, actually. But Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think in that case, we have to put freedom of religion into like big fat air, like freedom oh, of religion. Yeah. That's, that, yeah, it's very, it's very Absolutely. different. Um, I, mm -hmm. Look, I know the Amish it's look just, it's so very peaceful. How these people assume that they do. Yeah. Well, they look very innocent and, but honestly, um, some of the most horrific cases of child abuse, animal, animal abuse and abuse of women is going on in these communities to the point where there's an estimated 90% uh, sexual assault rate. Um, oh my God. And there, there's, there's sex trafficking. Um, there have been some murders in the name of their religion in the last couple of years. So it's mm -hmm. pretty scary. Now, how much of that did you know going into this project? Or is this all eye-opening because of this project? I knew nothing. That's incredible. I spent six months just trying to figure out, do I say bonnet here or cap? And, you know, trying to figure out why <laughs> yeah. the curtains were a problem when, like, children were being molested. Like, I really right. didn't understand that. It, it does feel like... <laughs> You know, like when you look at it from the outside, it does feel like a lot of minutiae, like, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and 
so whose whose title is that behind blue curtains who's in the end who got the choice of that title well originally lizzie wanted to call it life behind blue curtains and as her editor i said how about behind blue curtains okay um and then i added the tagline later on you know with the marketing mind because we had no marketing or or editor i would like to point out i would love to work with an editor it's my dream (laughs) i um no i loved so as a as a book nerd i bookworm i didn't realize i was wearing this until i looked down um as i read the first you know the mention of the blue curtains early on i was like "Ooh, like that was so well done the way it was woven in Mm -hmm. like as a work of of literature like as a literary memoir i really enjoyed the way this memoir read um so i up until this summer have been a middle school english teacher Okay. And one of my favorite units to teach is memoir. Um, we teach very heavily on um, the work of William Zinser and how to write a memoir and the process. And he talks about once you start to write your story, more and more stories come, which is interesting because as we've spoken with you working with the memoirist and as we spoke with Anna LeBaron in the past, that's been a common theme as well. Um, but I... Um, I also love to look at the way they're constructed from a writing perspective. And I have just very much enjoyed the way this is put together as a, as the mechanics of writing, I could present this in a class. So I appreciate that. I think that's the biggest compliment I've received. (laughs) Sorry. I think for me too, it, it just, it just speaks to like, as much as I know reading it that this is a memoir, it reads like a like a literary piece, like a like a piece of literature, and that is very difficult to achieve when you're writing a memoir. A lot of times, a memoir yes. just it reads like a memoir; it doesn't read like a like a piece of literature. And this like really marries those two very very well, and it's 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 kind of incredible. That's why I can't put it down. Thank you. So I think these are the biggest compliments I've received besides the letters from former Amish women, because you're acknowledging how hard it is to construct a plot. Yes. You know, I can write prose Mm -hmm. all day long, you know? Right. Um, Right. But construct, (laughs) and I did it alone. And if anybody out there is a writer, I think you can appreciate, especially like during quarantine, I I didn't write it during quarantine, but it felt like quarantine. You know, I had no, I wasn't working with an editor. I didn't have anybody to bounce ideas off of. And there were certain scenes that she really wanted to keep in like this big fire, house fire. Uh-huh. But she would, you know, she is the customer. She's the author. So right. I had to figure out, well, how do I make this relevant and interesting and keep all of this moving along, you know? Right. And and from a literary perspective, when you have something that big, you have to balance it out with a hint of sweetness. Like, right. I, I think there's also a, a good amount of when there's so much tragedy in any book, you have to give a good scene or the reader's just going to give up at some point. Right. Uh, 
I agree. (laughs) Now you're saying all these things that I've been wanting to talk about because I originally told her this has got to be like a little house on the prairie style in that these women who are going to be reading it, they don't have much more than an eighth grade education. They haven't read all the classics. They haven't, they're not reading modern literature. And so I need to tell them a story. And, you know, my ego worried about, oh my God, you know, what would Jeanette Winterson think? Or like, what would this famous critic think? Or what is NPR going to say about this? You know, it's like, (laughs) and I really had to remember who I was writing it for is... All things considered, I love it. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate the reference. Same. Terry Gross, if you're listening. Do I need to lean into my mic and hit my consonants very hard? Would that make you feel like you're in the place you want to be? I love it. Thank you. I'm sure I, I could, like, hearkening back to the true crime aspect, I'm sure I could find the voice of, of uh, Sarah Koenig in me somewhere. Oh, somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> right? But luckily, I grew up on all those books. Like when I was a little girl, I loved reading, you know, Little Women and The Secret Garden, like classically written literature. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to stay away from really getting too literary. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I, I also think so much of that works because so much of this book is told from the perspective of a young girl that you are trapped to the knowledge of a young girl. Like narratively you have the tools of somebody with an eighth grade education. Like there's just, there's so much skill there, but I didn't even think about your target audience being people who would understand, you know, like, like other survivors, I guess what you made it sound like, is that accurate that you were thinking of survivors as the target audience? Survivors and also plain women survivors. So for example, when I started working with Lizzie, she didn't want me to use the word shoved in the barn scene when she's right because he shoved her. That was too graphic, you know, and then later she, and then, so I had to work within, I wanted those women to keep reading. I did not want to scare them away. And that's what I was trying to do. Well, I think it really works too, because you, while you're you're um, catering to this audience of you know women that maybe don't have an education past the eighth grade, you keep that narrative of Lizzie, who also was in that position. She had not received an education past the eighth grade, so she was like you are describing what was happening to her as she understood it at the time, which is extremely powerful. You know when you read it back and you think, oh my goodness, like you're you're talking about a a very young girl experiencing these horrible things and not having the context to um, put into words what has happened to her. Right. It really comes across in that page. Yeah. Plus Lizzie did not have a lot of emotional language for what she had been through. I would say, well, how did that feel? How did that feel? And I'll never forget it was winter and I was in this horrible studio. I had no desk. I was writing from my bed and I was channeling a lot of my post-traumatic stress disorder, writing through these rape scenes. And I would Google, you know, Minnesota winters. And then I would have to like, just really dig down deep to try to uh, 
get to that emotional place, like sitting in an outhouse after being raped. Like, how did I feel, you know, in a similar situation, although not. Um, right. And I had to go places emotionally for Lizzie, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And totally. that probably took a couple of years off my life, honestly, but it was healing in the end, you know? Well, yeah. And what totally a, like incredible vulnerability you have to show to go through that. And I would have never thought about the kind of place that that put you in. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Not only with us today, but like in the pages of the book is, was there a point in writing this that you, you know, put your head in your hands and thought, what on earth am I doing? Oh or, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there were a lot of times that Lizzie quit and okay. there were a lot of, there was a whole winter where we both got really sick and I mean, from complex PTSD as she and I know it, and a lot of survivors of sexual assault do suffer from severe symptoms of complex PTSD. So, and we're processing this this work together. Um, and like now I start to lose my train of thought because you know it, it drops me almost into a flashback, which I'm not in, yeah. um, but I'm gonna have to ask you to repeat the question. Classic symptom. Right. Uh, was there a time where you wanted to, you were just sure you needed to give up or that yes. you had to give up on this Just project? like that. When I, yeah. <laughs> no worries. I have ADHD. I drop the question all the time and I don't have a good reason. Yeah, it's normal, you know. Um, plus, look, this was not this big, highly paid project. I mean, this was right. this was something that was done simply between two people and, you know, I really knew that it was going to be a personal journey over a professional one and turned out to be both, but I had to kind of embrace that and go along for the ride because, you know, it just, I wasn't, I don't want to say, I mean, you can edit this out. I wasn't trying to say, I'm not, I wasn't being paid enough, but I wasn't. So, right. No, I I totally understand what you mean though. I I, I also have complex PTSD, so I, like, completely understand exactly what you mean when you say, like, um, it's not that you weren't being paid enough, but it's, like, you're going on this journey, you're, like, what am I, I'm not reaping what I'm putting into this, this like, journey that I'm going on. Plus, I had to support her. I was the professional. And a lot mm-hmm. of times, it was, like, a, a therapist role, and I think she would be comfortable with me saying that because it's true. Yeah, you have to go deep to get some of that that stuff for a memoir. Yeah, I completely agree. I was actually going to ask you, like, you were really involved in the Me Too movement. Um, you can talk about that if you want to. You don't have to if you want to. Um, it's, I mean, give it a goog. It's, it's all there. Um, yeah, it's out there. How do you how do you think that all trickled down into these more isolated communities? That like, do you think it really trickled down and like pushed these women that were suffering to speak out like within these more isolated communities that maybe wouldn't normally be like, Oh, I'm part of the me too movement. If that makes sense. Another fantastic question. So yes, before I even met Lizzie, I was pulled into the me too movement because, um, the LA times published, uh, an article with, almost four or with some survivors of James Toback, who was a big 
he wasn't a big producer, but he was a, a film guy, <laughs> right? Um, but he was a predator. Um, he would stand outside of uh, Lincoln Center for hours every day trying to pick up young women, a lot of them underage, uh, and promising them uh, movie careers. And I was one of those girls. I was 15 years old. And um, he just groomed me. Um, and I, I had tried to say something about it back at that time. Um, so fast forward, I see this LA Times article and I was one of another almost 400 women that came out. I was the only known victim who was a minor at the time to come forward. So that set it apart a little bit, um, but Weinstein was being sought after at the time and we sort of went into the shadows, which is fine. Like this is a progressive struggle, but um, it really put me in touch with survivors from all over, like the Nasser survivors. And the, I hate to put the the offender first, but Cosby. Oh, and no, I completely understand. What Kelly. You're like, you're like, but no, could, like, yeah, like screw those guys. Like we're talking about the people that survived right. those people. Yeah, no, I completely. I will say Andrea Constant, who brought Bill Cosby down. Um, I work with. I started working with her and some of the silence breakers for Weinstein. But then I had Rose also Milano, been Rose McGowan, like right. people like that that we, that were really at the forefront of that movement. Rachel Dellenhander, so amazing women. And I and then I started working with the plain women and they had never met somebody like me. They invited me out to their farms and their safe houses in Minnesota. I met their kids. I shot guns. Like we <laughs> ran around in ATVs and got into accidents. I mean, I really got to know them. And you know what? A lot of them are Trump supporters. Um, but I will tell you this, and they know I, this is my opinion. It's a slow fight and like, one thing at a time and let's get them voting and maybe, you know, talking with, with the outside world before we demand, you know, all these other things. So that's my oh, absolutely. And I do 100%. work on, a, and I work on a board of directors with conservative men who still have one step in the Anabaptist world. And as a revolutionary from Brooklyn, I think that's progress. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I think, I think just from my own upbringing, like any church elder listening to a woman is just light years beyond anything I could have ever expected. So, I mean, that is the first step in the, in the step of many steps, but it's a really good, it's a positive one. And, you know, I think especially coming from these um, more rural, more isolated communities, you can't expect someone to come out and be like, oh, um, now I'm going to vote and I'm going to, I'm going to be a Democrat. Like that's a, that's a big ask for someone that's been sheltered their entire life and been told to do what they do every single day for their entire life. Getting the opportunity to, to exercise using their voice is already yes. such a huge step. Yes. 100%. And I hope I, I think that it has divided people for a long time, you know, education, class, race, like all of that stuff. But you know, they respect me and I can introduce more and more ideas. 
Right. And that's really what I, I'm all about. And that's why I can work with somebody like Lizzie Hershberger and write this this book is you got to be able to put yourself somewhere, even in the toe of their shoes. <laughs> I mean, because if, if you just like write them off as like, oh, these people are Trump supporters or Republicans, whatever, and you walk away, you're walking away from an entire voter base, an entire community that is completely uneducated about what politics has become in our time. Plus, and some so, of their kids are liberal, so we know that yeah. they're all liberal. <laughs> yeah. their kids are liberal. Totally. As, as the liberal children of conservatives, we both get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, man. I wanted to ask you too. I was listening to the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast that you were that you and Lizzie were both on, and you mentioned. Um, the survivors movement. And I just kind of wanted to ask you about what that was and what that meant to you. That's a great question. Wow. You guys are good. Um, Don't tell anybody. We have a, um, a knack for not doing our homework. This is the one and only time and we don't want to ruin our reputation. Okay. Okay. I promise. I'm like literally obsessed with you though. So. <laughs> oh my God. What was the question? The survivors oh, movement. Right. Tell the us survivors movement. Yes. So, I'm working with um, the, pres the president of SNAP, which is Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. His, his name is Tim Lennon, and uh, he's, he's one of my clients, and he came to me asking if I would help him with research on the survivors movement, and I asked, well, how is that different from the Me Too movement? And, you know, really this is a movement that's been building for the last 25 years, if not way longer. And it's got roots in the feminist movement and the child abuse. And I think in the civil rights, and I think the survivors movement has the potential to transcend some of these other movements in that we have been so fractured in the past where, you know, it's men are separate from women and then LGBTQ are separate. And now I'm in these uh, virtual survivors groups and I am accommodating men and I'm calling them survivors and not just women. Oh, no, I took that out. Right. Because there's men. They're white. They're black. They're gay. They're straight. They're they're everywhere. And to me, this is an opportunity for us to all talk and mm -hmm. and become even more powerful. Um, so that's what I say when I what, what I mean. That's what I mean when I say survivors movement. I think we're all sort of getting to a place, hopefully, where we can come together as a larger force to change. I love, I, I love that. I think that, especially in this um, genre or this um, particular issue where you talk about like sexual abuse, rape, things like that, it spans everyone. And people don't realize, I think it's really been the last 10 years where people are like, oh yeah, men can get raped. And I'm like, wait, of course they can. Like anyone can, because rape is not about sex. Rape is about power. And so anyone can be a victim of sexual assault, of rape. And um, I think it's really important, you know, that all survivors are able to come together as a whole because the more that we're divided, the less effective we are. I still think we need some separate safe spaces. Like I've been in no, some I, groups yeah. with no, I get that. 
you know, and sometimes I'm like, okay, I just need to go back to my all women. Yeah. <laughs> as a, like, as a, someone that's been sexually assaulted, like I completely understand needing to like go back to like a women's only group where I can talk about an experience that I had without other people around. Um, but I think as a whole in trying to affect change, um, it's more important to be together um united but separate if that makes sense then you know just just like each trying to fight our own battles without getting anywhere yeah yeah um i think it's yeah all that's important yeah and you talked about too like becoming empowered within your trauma and i just i wanted to ask you like how did you do that oh gosh well you're asking me Honestly, on a day when I came through a really bad weekend. So I don't want to sit here. I am an empowered survivor. Of course. But it doesn't mean that it's not really, 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 really hard sometimes. Um, no, I, I have overcome addiction to alcohol. I've overcome, you know, uh, being in the U.S. mental health industry and psych wards, I was homeless in my 40s. Um, so I've been through a lot and now I'm on very limited medications and I'm not in horrific physical pain. I, I thought I was going to die a few years ago. So the fact that I'm sitting here speaking in really, okay, I was also horribly underweight. I mean, complex trauma can tear you apart. Yes, so the fact that I'm sitting in front of you at a normal weight, um, able to engage with my nephew, sober, I can speak in full sentences, and I can talk with other survivors, this is a miracle. And it, I think it's true. Like we can go from victims, there's a lot of work to get from victim to survivor, but it's it's worth it. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to ask you and, and you don't like, again, like coming from your own like mental space, if you don't have the mental space to like talk about it, that's fine. Um, you, you've talked openly about having complex PTSD. I also have complex PTSD. I was diagnosed last year. I'm 30. I was 37. I'm 38 now. So oh, like really kind of early um, because I think most people get diagnosed in their forties, um, working with a therapist. It's like, she's yeah. incredible. I'm doing EMDR, I'm doing all these things, but I was really interested in your journey with that and like how you came about that. But again, like if you're not in a place to talk about that, that's totally fine. Actually I am like, I'm having a great day. And that's, what's great about recovery is that after a day of crying, I'm going to be laughing because that's like the natural order of my body chemistry. Um, I do actually get this question, get asked this question a lot. And it, it's not a simple answer. Like it's not one thing that helped me. Um, right. I had terrible health insurance. I was fortunate enough to be um, approved for social security disability at a time when it saved my life. Um, I can say what did not work for me was psych wards and being yeah. on Medicaid and being shuffled around from one homeless place to another and sort of treated like a criminal. That didn't work. Um, a lot of the traditional medications 
did not work. I've been on everything. I've been misdiagnosed with a lot. Um, I have too, and I was really interested in that. You kind of you, you referenced that on your, I think, on your website, but I was diagnosed as um, bipolar and then borderline personality, and then I like then finally I find the right therapist and she's like, no, you don't have any of that. Like you just have this. And now I'm on like a very basic, like combination medication. And I think it really works well for me, but I feel like a lot of times people who have been through like really complex trauma can get bogged down and like, in what people are telling them about themselves. And it's like, wait, just, just think about like, just stop. And if it doesn't feel right, keep fighting because I didn't, I didn't for a long time. And I was just zoned out on meds, like completely like dead to the world. And it really, it cost me a lot of years of my life. And so now I'm like really advocate for that. So most of the people I know with complex PTSD are on eight to 12 medications. And that was the case with me also. And I started um, almost like having the symptoms that the medication was trying to treat me for. I think I lost years of my life. Um, I will say for me, um, I had, I was extremely lucky to find a doctor who had a lot of compassion and gave me affordable ketamine infusions. Um, You know, I don't like to put that out there because it's not accessible to a lot of people. Um, And I do not recommend um, the nasal spray, the the, um, the intramuscular, um, or any other form. Like, that's why I sometimes don't bring it up because. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's it's so nuanced. It's, it's, it can be so different. Yeah. Look, I've tried it all and I just, and I've tried the lozenges. So I would say to you though, that that is, um, that was something that helped me. I went to Ireland on this spiritual, uh, pilgrimage and I started having these visions when I came back, I was brought up as an atheist. So, but I was searching for spiritualism and honestly, it sounds hokey, but I started having these visions and a lot of my body started healing. I could tell you some of these miraculous stories another time, but (laughs) I'm on. And and then I think that the new psychedelic breakthroughs are going to be really good for our shift in mental health in general. Um, You know, what is it? Psilocybin. Um, I'm excited about MDMA therapy. Uh, I recommend doing it sober from alcohol at least or any other alcohol that makes you hurt yourself and others. Yeah. But anybody can contact me through my website and I'm happy to talk with people one-on-one, you know, through email That's or Zoom. Amazing. Thank you so much. Like I just, I'm really interested in this topic as someone that has like been through it and like, now I feel like I'm on a more level plane and I'm like, wait, I went through so much like sh- shit yeah for years for me to be like oh wait 10 years later oh now i can see clearly but i lost all this all this time that i was not thinking clearly and i was sleeping 12 hours a day and i was just some 
a mess. So it's awful. Also, The Body Keeps the Score is a great book to start it's a with. Great book. I love that book. Please, everyone go read yeah. that book if you're really interested. Please. It's a very good book. It's a great My book. Therapist and you know and I what? talk about that book a lot. And write. Hey, write your experience. And you can always contact me for that, too. It can be very healing if you have the right person guiding you, like myself, mollymave.com. Ka-ching. Amazing. Can you put a Absolutely. little like sound effect in there? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, going back to the book, you know, I was really struck by a couple of things that um, Lizzie says, and maybe you, as you, as you are writing this, um, she said a couple of things. One, not knowing if the word victim belonged to her. Mm. And then two, um, she, like a direct quote from the book where she's writing in her journal. She says, quote, I still don't know who I am. And I really resonated with both of those statements where I'm like, the first one, not knowing if the word victim belonged to her, where she's, you know, talking about there are things I could have done possibly to get out of this situation. It would have never happened. Whereas in the real world, probably not. But in your mind, you you feel like you need to create that outlet for yourself where you could have gotten out because it makes it easier to digest. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that when I was 12 years old, my I escaped from a gang rape and my 12, my best friend did not. And we ended up at the local police station in Brooklyn. And I was interviewed by this police officer and he was asking how my friend and I were different from other girls and why were we there? And I was treated like an accuser. So I hated already. God. I had to remember that I wasn't treated like a victim. I absolutely, I was not like offered counseling. I was exactly. And you were treated like a suspect. hundred percent. Any girls who are not getting sex education, like Anabaptists, for example, um, are also, and who are tr taught that if a boy or a man abuses them, it's their own fault for being desirable. Of course, we're not going to know that we're victims. And I think a lot of people are wary of living in victimhood. And I don't want to be a victim. But sometimes you need to acknowledge, for me anyway, I had to acknowledge I was a victim in order to become an empowered survivor. You don't have to spend a lot of time as a victim. Just acknowledge this shouldn't have happened. I was not responsible. I had to, I had to do the same thing. Like as a teenager, I was victimized by someone in my youth group. And when some, like when I went to an adult about it, they were like, well, what were you doing? What were you inviting? Like what was going on with you? Like it was all about me and I was like, wait, didn't this happen to me? Like, why am I answering these questions? And, um, but I also accepted it at the time and it took me a long time to kind of deconstruct from all of that nonsense. Where I was like, Oh wait, that was wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. and I just, it's so interesting how we get kind of wrapped up in doctrine that doesn't even apply to the situation that we're in but we think that it does 
Yes. And I will say that if you ask Lizzie today, she might say, I do know who I am today. And that's not something she would not have said when we started this process. And that's like the healing process of like writing that all out and getting it all out it of is. you. It mm-hmm. is. When did y'all start this project? I met Lizzie through a friend who was also straddling Me Too, who had grown up Amish, um, I think in 2017. Okay. Um, But again, you know, I wrote most of the book in under six months at the end, you know, but right. So all of that, that time with the breaks in between, she lost one of her children at one point and she came forward and she gave up, she gave up the night before it was supposed to be published. And, and that's not to put her down because I totally understand like the fact that she published this is extraordinarily brave because she received death threats. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting friendship. So are y'all still, I mean, obviously y'all are still in touch, but, um, when this whole initial thing is over, how close do you think y'all will still work? Is this a friendship that's going to persist? You think like, I guess after, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like when you go through this together, these are bonds that don't leave very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yes. I will be honest and say that Lizzie and I had our ups and downs. Okay. You know, we, neither of us had really done this independently before. We didn't know about contracts. We didn't know about boundaries sometimes. I mean, right. it was, there were so many things that we were going through together. Um, but in the end, you can't take that experience away from us. Right. Um, we both understand, I think now more than ever, how uh, the chances of this coming together the way it did and actually being published and her being happy with it, mm-hmm. that's like a miracle to us. Oh, I and Totally. Again, I was raised as an atheist and Lizzie is, um, is Christian, but I would say that this was a spiritual experience. Um, I really felt a lot of the time, like there was something bigger than us sort of guiding us and merging us. And Lizzie and her whole family has been very generous to me in spirit. I stayed at their home. I've tried to adopt their farm animals, um, shot their guns. Did you ever try to steal a baby goat? Because literally like my goal in life is to have a a baby i don't want it when it's an adult i just want the baby i want the baby goat you could get one in minnesota <laughs> i'm gonna call we have a friend named anna who lives in minneapolis anna i need a i need a baby goat <laughs> yeah like just there are plenty ready of for our Texas. dc trip right yeah <laughs> like you're just in the hill country yeah i literally i literally live in the hill country in texas if i could i could throw a stone and get a baby goat if i i think you can get a baby goat this, almost like, anywhere now right. you can like, get one at the local yoga studio here oh yeah I have, this, like, I have this annoying cat that's like 
staring at me. Oh, I love her. She interrupts every recording. Winston has not barked today, so I'm still waiting for his input. I have a hundred pound giant schnauzer. He's a giant schnauzer lab mix. They didn't predict he would get so big. Oh my God, he's enormous. So then whenever he was nine months old, we adopted a toddler. So then we had two toddlers running around the house. So there's always something happening. Oh my gosh. So uh, in the middle of quarantine. So it's been a real, (laughs) real fun adjustment period for all of us. (laughs) But usually my dog stands right outside my window where I record and And barks for about four minutes for every recording. Oh, what a sweetheart. (laughs) Right. He just, whenever, especially when I'm really riled up, like he feels whenever I'm riled up and he just wants to give his input. He's mad on my behalf. Oh, totally. Yeah. So like, okay. So tell me more, like I'm really interested in the community involved and behind the blue curtains. Like it seems from what I've read that they are more restrictive than the run of the mill Amish community. So I'm really interested in how you, like perceived that, you know, I think the mainstream people, people that are outside of that have a, um, a view of what is an Amish community, but this seems to be a little bit more restrictive. So can you tell me a yeah. little bit about that? They're called Swartz and Struber, Amish, and they're the most conservative. Um, so for example, you know, they have not only do the men wear the straw hats, but they have those long square beards. They have the suspenders. And I was, the the men I work with on the board don't, aren't like that. But for example, they're so modest that in a Zoom meeting, I, it was hot, it was summertime and I had shorts on and I sort of put my knees up. And I later found out that the two men were texting each other about the knee porn it, you know, oh I, mean, my God. I, I thought it was hilarious, but I have to like adjust myself now. And I'm like, I cover my elbows. I'm like, I don't want them to get turned on with the knees or the elbows. Oh my God. So I like relate to this so hard. So I grew up in, I mean, the height of purity culture where like I went to summer camp and it was like, if your shorts aren't at your knees, you're causing your brother to stumble. Even if he's your boyfriend, he's your brother. That's weird. Um, and you know, like you need your, your shirt to be like here. Cause if not, like, even if you have like a little like V neck, you're, you're pointing him down, like to where your, your boobs right, so are. You have to double cross- layer the camis until mm-hmm. maybe triple layer until you've made a, a, a turtleneck of camis yeah so i totally understand that but at the same time it's like it sounds so ridiculous but this is what they're taught to believe that like if a woman is wearing like a tiny v-neck she's trying to seduce you and it's like oh honey no well (laughs) and like for our listeners who um, are trying to picture this without having read the book yet because they're all going to rush out and buy it. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. If their yeah, there's your second kachin sound. Um, if their idea is that is it who has the show Breaking Amish that was popular? Oh, for TLC. TLC. You know, and they show the their room springer and stuff. They even mentioned like you even mentioned in this book that the 
Schwarzenstruber don't have a they don't springer. do like, they don't, springer, yeah they don't allow you to even like peek through the outside world not officially right but they're <laughs> but here's the thing you know i was talking to my sister daisy egan of strange and Unex- unexplained with daisy egan um tony award-winning daisy egan. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget that um i was looking for it so uh, <laughs> If she showed me the Tony, I would literally pass out. Like, somewhere around here. Um, I'm like, there's just like, hey, get around. Like, it's just like a paperweight. Like, it is. Like, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking for a Tony. What? Oh I think it's in the living room, yeah. No! Yeah. It just floats around like a new place. She's, she carried around her purse once, so it's very funny. Oh, I would never Listen. let go of it. I would sleep with my arm out, death gripping it. I would shower with my arm out the curtain. No one would take a Tony away from me. Yeah. I recently no read an, an advanced reader's copy of a book called The Gunkle, and he has a golden globe. And the, there's a, a scene where there's an earthquake, and one of the children gets injured. And the other child is like, what about your golden globe? And he's like, fuck my golden globe and i was like that that would be me because i would literally carry that thing everywhere and it would not be until a child was injured that i would be like no i don't need my golden globe (laughs) yeah yeah i think it it probably needs to be dusted i don't remember what Back to the I question. I don't know about Bruce and then you brought up your sister, and we don't know where we were going. With oh my this. god! Not an official Bruce Now there's a Tony involved. I don't know what's happening. T- <laughs> oh my god! And um, this is this is the content people expect from us. So you have just fit okay. right in. So Absolutely. if you would like to join us on a more regular basis, oh, I know what it was. She was okay. critiquing my book. You know, telling me what was good and off with it and i think it's hard for people to understand the amish these swartz and stubers are so uh hypocrites they're such hypocrites oh yeah that she it may be you know the Eng- in the english us english people are just like what like what does that even mean or or they don't understand it quite as much and i think maybe right it was a little out there for some people, but we didn't even put all the out there stories in there. Like they oh really gosh. are. I'm sorry, I don't want to get you know shot with a shotgun, but it, they're perverted. No. They're just. Oh. It's almost yeah. like let's just keep hiding this horrible, abusive, perverted lifestyle. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of. So I went to college for a little while in San Angelo, Texas, and um, right around that time, the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Jesus, like Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints had built their compound in El Dorado, which is about 15 miles outside of San Angelo. And it was right during the height of like Warren Jeffs and all that like craziness and, um, I think I was a junior in college when that whole thing got shut down and they were like taking the kids out. It was like a whole thing. And I think that that's what they're trying to avoid, right? It's like, okay, we have seen the product of what it could become and we'd rather just keep our mouths shut because we don't want that. 
Right. There's a lot of benefits to living in an isolated religious community. If you want like power over people, it, it is really a cult. And that's what people yeah. who've left call it is a cult. I don't know if that answers I completely question. agree. But and I, you know, it's, it's the same thing with the FLDS and Warren Jeffs, who's still running his cult from prison. From prison. Just baffle, like baffles my brain. Like you're what? <laughs> you're wow. listening to a guy who's in prison and you're still like following his instructions. Like that just breaks that, my brain. And the Menendez brothers, isn't that oh. the, what's happening? Aren't they developing a cult? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. They're still, I mean, they're still out there. They're still like very prevalent within that area of West Texas. Um, they did get the children back, which I mean, is good and bad. I, you know, I waffle on like the lawfulness of like going in and taking the children. Um, but you know, it's, it's horrible the way that they are treated and the way that they allow themselves to be treated by a man who's literally in prison for the rest of his life for being the worst. (laughs) Um, You know, caught, like he didn't believe in the color red. He was caught in a red SUV. He had like $150,000 in cash on him. I thought you said he had like 150,000 wives, which was also an accurate statement. Also that, but like, but he also, he was in Las Vegas, which, you know, like, I mean, the FLDS is like, you know, no to gambling and caffeine and alcohol. And it was just like, he was doing everything he wasn't supposed to be doing, but they still follow him, even though he's in prison. It's, it's why it just. Breaks he was all but buried yeah. under a like mound of cocaine and yeah. is still like being worshipped. <laughs> it it really does. It, it breaks my brain. I don't understand it. And it's just it it really baffles me that hold, and I think you could probably speak to that, but the hold that people have over those kind of communities where it's like, okay, yes, this happened, but we're gonna dismiss it as like the world like the world corrupting like what they're doing for our community and like making it a bad thing when really it's a good thing for us. Yeah, it is strange. And, and look, uh, there have been a couple of deaths of young children and you know, these are cases we're working on with never stand alone, but, um, what these old order Mennonites, for example, do is they force the parents to beat the children, to beat the demons out of them, and the parents have to stand by. And that's why a lot of them are leaving is because they cannot stand by and do nothing. And there was a four-year-old girl was killed um, this past year because the parents stood by and did nothing in the name of religion. And so, yeah, yeah. I really resonate with that. Like, okay, I have a child. My child is 17 or he's about to be 17. So he's old now, but also. You look like you're 17. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. What's going on here? (laughs) Do you have your filter on? (laughs) No. No. All right. I have a child that's about to be 17 and I his father was very abusive to me, never to him, thank God. But I remember like looking at him as a child and being like, I could never let this happen to you. Yeah. And I like that, like 
that child is my world. Like that child who is now almost an adult is my world. And even now I'm like, Hey, can you like, not like abuse yourself or like, you know, do bad things to yourself because I made you from scratch. And if you could just like leave yourself <laughs> intact, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to have to use that on my eight year old nephew. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, so if I can harken back to your early days, you mentioned being a crime beat reporter. Yes. Um, so as a true crime podcast, I just want to know what do you have a case that either stuck with you when you were reporting or a case that you remember that like got you really interested in a case at any point in your life that has just been like that case you can't let go? Well, you mean like an unsolved any case or, so like i case. know okay, that like yeah. john bonnet and oj were the two big cases that really got me into true crime as a whole because i was very um, young and they and both as, really have impacted me as the counterpoint i've heard so much about john bonnet she's done she's over it yeah well you know it was the grandfather right well all, right. all i know is that Somebody related to me knows her old babysitter who said it was the grandfather. So there you go. Oh, okay. Case closed. We're yep. Let's call. Someone, You're welcome. You're welcome. As someone who does not think it was the brother, I appreciate right. your we'll, contribution. We'll right. <laughs> I know. I thought it was the brother too early on. I don't. I don't think it was I the brother. Don't. I just don't. Okay, Scott Peterson. He was like, he was like seven. Like, I don't, like, I don't think he could have gotten away with it. <laughs> okay, you're right. You're right. We're the se okay. You're right. Okay. But what about Scott Peterson? Isn't he innocent now? Is that the new thing? No. Yeah. I don't think he. I don't think he's innocent. I think that he was convicted upon very evidence. Lots of circumstantial evidence with nothing hard but to convict I, him. But I don't think he's innocent. Unless there's like some bombshell that I have not heard of yet, which maybe there is. I mean, maybe there is. I I heard some, I heard some compelling evidence told okay. in a compelling way, probably on a true crime podcast. Right. So it must be true. Uh, obviously, yeah. obviously, obviously. Us podcasts, we're doing the hard work. The police, like, screw them. Like, we're we're doing the work here. I will say oh, that yeah, he is off of death death row. I remember reading oh. about that now. Yeah. Right. Um. Well, as a crime reporter, I did a feature on missing persons in the area, and I went to talk to those families. Uh huh. Um, and that was cool. Although they all hoped I would like solve it, and I just yeah. I had to write too many obits and weather reports. Also, but um, I will say that like. One of the things I did it as a true crime, uh, as I wasn't a true crime reporter. I was a crime beat reporter. Um, this guy shot up New Paltz with a semi-automatic weapon. He was 25 and he was just really pissed off. He ended up shooting and injuring a police officer. But like this was an early on like random shooting up of a town. And uh, it happened on a Thursday night and I was off Friday. Friday morning, 8 o'clock, I walked into the county jail i knew his he wouldn't have been gotten an attorney yet i wore a mini skirt i wore some really nice lipstick 
and I ate some perfume. I wrote a nice note and I ended up in his jail cell with an exclusive interview. Um, and honestly, Honestly, I really thought he was a nice guy, you know, and we ended up talking about the mental health system and this and that. And um, I ended up like talking with his family and stuff. So I am a big true crime fan. And and still to this day, I live in Hollywood. I look very closely at the faces of the people on the streets, for example, and I look at missing people's posters. And I'm one of those crazy web sleuths. I love that. Same. Yeah. Same. So do you do you have a case, like, not even one you worked on, do you have a case, like a true crime case that you're like, wait, this is the one that I want to see solved above every other one? Oh, yes. Okay, so there's a case of a missing girl in Washington, D.C., who was... Um, missing for well over a month before they even started searching for her because she was oh, technically God. in the, she was living in a homeless shelter. And um, the guy they think took her uh, committed suicide and then they've never found her body. Oh my God. Um, I think she was eight. Oh my God. And that's a case that just has not gotten a lot of attention, I think, because she was a homeless girl in Washington, D.C. But yeah. the fact that nobody, like this, not the school, not the shelter, like no doctors, nobody, nobody in her family, no, nobody notified police for like right. over a month, that to me, she deserves justice. I wish I could Absolutely. think of her name. I have the same like, issue, you know, like my, my one unsolved true crime case is when I was seven, my neighbor was kidnapped and murdered. And um, the, I mean, not interesting, This the more sad part about that is like, she was kidnapped and murdered. She was a young white woman, a young white girl, obviously. Um, she made the news like all over the news. Can you say her name? Time, her name is Heidi Seaman. Okay, I might have um, heard a story. And she, so during the same time, um, it was Fiesta in San Antonio. There was a lot going on. Um, there was another young girl whose name I actually don't remember, and I'm going to look it up right now. But she was also kidnapped during the same time and was found murdered, and she got no press. Like, Heidi got all the press, and the other girl got none. Mm -hmm. Um and it like the both of them just haunt me. I mean, obviously Heidi Stevens murder haunts me because, you know, she was my neighbor. Like I lived down the street from her. She was four years older than me, but it just broke me. And it's, that's why I'm obsessed with true crime now. But um, it's just, it's so sad. Uh, Erica, Bot Erica Botello was the other girl. And, um, she was kidnapped and murdered around the same time as Heidi Seaman, mm. and they've never found either of their murderers. So, wow, the DC girl is Relisha uh, Rudd, just so I can say okay. her name out loud. Yes, uh, someone should do a podcast on those those two girls, the missing girls. They mm -hmm. Have they? No. Has um, 
so from the Heidi and um, the other girl, they like I've suggested it to other podcasts. I've never done one. I did one for our Patreon. It was very shallow. Honestly, the amount of information is nothing. There's just nothing. If you go in like deep diving, you know, in the internet, there's just there's nothing about them. You know, there's like a Reddit thread that's like, oh, oh, everyone knows who did it. And I'm like, great. Who was it? Because I lived down the street from this girl. Who was it? Right. I'm, now, I'm real, now I'm so curious. What are their names again? Um, Heidi Seaman was my neighbor. Okay. I mean, it's so rare to find cases that haven't been overly done, you know? Mm-hmm. It, what was it, the other one? Um, the other girl's name is um, Erica Botello, B-O-T-E-L-L-O. And what's crazy is around the same time, so my sister had just been born and she was in the um, in the NICU. She was born premature. She was in the NICU. My parents were gone all the time. And I remember distinctly one night, it was after Heidi had been abducted before they found her body. Um, I had a babysitter over at my house and my babysitter like scooped me out of bed in the middle of the night like brought me to my parents bedroom because there was a person standing outside our sliding glass door wow and oh, like the, our babysitter like her parents lived across like the road and so she called her dad she didn't call the cops she called her dad who like came over with a baseball bat couldn't find anybody but like it's one of those things that like i rem- i remember that like deeply within myself yeah. And I wish I could see that. That's the one case I wish I could see solved because it would make me sleep better at night. Maybe that's selfish, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I was approached on the subway when I was young, maybe 11 or 12, by a man in a baseball cap who said, Come with me, I'm transit police. And I had already stepped into the car and he, he was trying Don't to get me it. to exit the car. Well, I didn't. And <laughs> the doors, the door, you know, I was pretty savvy by that age. I was from Brooklyn. I was, he was yeah. in Manhattan. So the door is closed. And then, <laughs> you know, but I have to say for, for years afterwards, especially when I got older, I was like, who was that? Was and that? who did he abduct? Like, and I've actually done some research trying to figure out, was there um, a prolific child abductor in New York City? Yes who was posing it as a transit cop in the 19, I guess, eighties it would have been. And that scares mm-hmm. the crap out of me. Absolutely. No, I'm the same way. That's my thing. I'm like, okay, I was seven. She was 11. She was walking home from a sleepover with a friend. She was kidnapped. There were all these theories and it's like, wait, what happened? Like what happened to this? What happened to her? You yeah. know, I've already pulled it up. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm so like I if you find anything, please let me know. Like I'm so invested in this case. Like I, of course, I, I would like I would go undercover like with a murderer to solve this case because I like it just it 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 wears on my mind. I would. Yeah, I you know I, I I'm with you, but I'm gonna look into it because I just think the, the cases probably are solvable. You know, documentaries like Don't Fuck with Cats totally proves it. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, Aaron and I watched that together one night through Netflix party or whatever. And we were just like, what yes. the hell? We want to interview it them is, so badly. It <laughs> is the singular worst and best 
show ever because like the animal abuse like no yeah, throw it away i hate it. it like yeah. but but the rest of it that i'm like where these like rent like these armchair detectives are hunting this man down and find him like <laughs> that, that is interesting yeah. as hell <laughs> and any woman who can spend 16 hours looking at latvian doorknobs has a piece of my heart like you go girl yeah well and i'm just like this is the shit that they talk about on csi when they're like enhancing the the (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) on the hubcap of a car to get the reflection of a car's passing by and i'm like that's not what's happening it's poor sherry looking at 19 (laughs) door handles like golly i'm also columbo (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm yes. a Columbo addict, I think. Where he just like he's like, Oh, I'm I'm stuck, I need some like duct tape and <laughs> he just pretends he's an idiot. He's a genius. Like that's more my style, you know. I'm just a pretty fish. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh man. All right. It has well. like this has been a pleasure. <laughs> an absolute delight. Is there anything Absolutely. else you would like to share with us tonight? Um, uh, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say plug your socials before you, <laughs> before I forget to remind you to do that. <laughs> oh, is there anything else that you do that's like amazing and wonderful that we don't know about yet? Right. All we've done is talk about all the amazing and wonderful things. You do you do. have your Tony in your purse you haven't told us about? Yeah, I she's don't like, have... oh, by the way, I secretly won an Oscar. Here it is. <laughs> My stepmother does have a couple of Grammys, but that's in classical music. Here's here's okay. The thing. What kind of musician is she though? Tell she, me about. She's she a, she's a, a, a Grammy. Oh, producer. Okay. <laughs> I myself, I don't think I have any awards. Um, I've never been in that. Honestly, like, I, I mentor a lot of women. You know, not for pay. Um, we work on getting their stories out and I zoom with them and I I'm close to a lot of women survivors and um I'm I'm forgetting where I'm going with that but that's where I got me to mollymave.com and really what I offer there is uh, writing coach service services um I can ghostwrite I can edit and create content I'm also a certified recovery coach um with almost 10 years of sobriety um congratulations and amazing work thank yes, you congrats and i was I'm actually also- gonna ask you that reminds me i'm so sorry um okay so as i've worked with my therapist and all that i've wanted to get into like trauma-informed yoga trauma-informed like healing services like i feel like that's where my heart calls me right now i'm an insurance underwriter that ain't it but (laughs) do you have any advice for someone that like wants to go down that path of um other than like don't (laughs) other than like 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 getting into the space of like trauma-informed healing type careers or jobs or or just like practice i would say um there are a lot of survivors groups, especially virtual ones, and you can meet people mm-hmm. from all over the world. Um, and yeah. it's a great way to 
uh, you know, connect and see what people are doing. I took a storytelling, a recovery storytelling workshop, and that led me to uh, being offered to get my recovery coach licensing. And, you know, that led me to something else. So I can also work with people who are in recovery from complex PTSD, for example. I've been I've been through almost every treatment there is. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where I'm sort of focused right now. I, someday I would love to have a, my own desk and chair and a room of my own, as Vir Virginia Woolf said, and work on my own writing. Like I have a lot of articles. I have my own. Um, I'm sure. I have my own book that I wrote about surviving complex PTSD despite the U.S. mental health system. Um, Actually, I, write I found an article of yours. I'm sorry. I found an article of yours from like 2004 that was like um, about attending like an anti-abortion. Oh, uh, like meeting. a prayer. Yes, like a prayer. That's it. Mm -hmm. That was about a pregnancy support, I'm using air quote center, that was actually yes. um, a Christian conservative agency trying to steer women away from abortions. And I, Which are huge here in Texas, like, mm -hmm. like huge. Yes, um, huge everywhere, unfortunately. It's horrible. I mean, I mean, you don't have to you don't even have to do a Google search to find out what's happening here in Texas right yeah. now. We're just kind of waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. Totally. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's been, yeah. it's been a rough section of time, I will say. And it does make me like, eventually I'd like to have a hammock and just write fantasy and young adult fiction. Like I want to write about Ireland and goddesses and, and I, that's really what I would like to be doing, but I'm sort of on a mission that. first. So no, again, I totally understand. It's like, wait, I want to, I, I have to, I have to do this. And then I want to do this afterwards. Yeah. Right. And you've got Paul's attention now with Ireland and fantasy. So well, I was just going <laughs> to say, I can't wait to read what you do when you have your own, a room of your own with a desk and a chair. Uh, and... I can't wait either. I love the work you are doing with others and through others. And I can't wait to see Same. what you bring to us in the future. Thank so, you. Thank you for sharing I your feel... time with us and your voice with us tonight. This is definitely my favorite podcast interview by far oh, that I've done. Um, I think I you guys so are going to cut off the quote as much as I want. And I'm going like, <laughs> to this is definitely my favorite podcast. Ever. <laughs> Please. I don't care. No. Yeah, I can. I can. This has been my favorite podcast to do. I think you guys are amazing. So, I mean, your questions, I really feel like I've sort of been prepared fully for my interview on NPR with Terry Gross. Oh, I'm so glad. It was the leaning in and the hard continents, wasn't it? It was mm -hmm. all the great yeah. questions, too. You really like these are the <laughs> questions I was waiting for somebody to ask. Like, if I was going to interview myself, which I would love to do because, you know, I would have asked those questions. Same. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. Well, thank you. It, it has literally been a joy to get to talk to you. It's been so much fun. Um, I would love I to, your... how do I, I, you know, I would love to, um, I'm going to do some research on, on these people, but like, okay, you know, you can milk me a little, like for my sister, Patrick is in town. I don't know. Like, uh, 
you know, I will certainly put you out there, but I will ask my Look, sister. You're the better, also. like, as for now, you're the better Egan sister. So. Ooh, my, <laughs> my name, people used to think my name was the sister. They'd be like, are you the actress? Oh, oh, oh yeah, the, you're the sister. Oh, no. No way. No way. So, so first of all, well, like, even if you're lying, I love it. Molly is a great name. I'm guessing y'all are Irish. Yeah, we're, we're part, half Irish, half Jewish, you know. Okay, so my mother's maiden, well, my grandmother's maiden name is Patterson. So um, the when I when I was pregnant, like the the push to name my baby if it was a girl, Maeve, was very hard. So like I feel a kinship to you. <laughs> Instead, he's a boy. His name is Colin, but. <laughs> Maeve is a great um, name. I, I was going to change is, my name to Maeve, just Maeve, you know, but. Oh, I love that. But the former Amish. I hope it was going to be just Maeve. I know. I'd love to just say just my Maeve. name is just Maeve. But, <laughs> you know, the, most people can't even spell or pronounce it. No. So for now, yeah. I'm Molly Maeve. Yeah. I mean, literally, people can't even pronounce or spell Colin. So, <laughs> I mean, we have a long way to go. <laughs> Totally. The amount of times he gets called Colin or they spell it with what? two L's and I'm like, no, that's, nope, that's not it. That's just like literally his name is in the roster. Like what is wrong with you? Well, <laughs> I would love to invite you back. Should you ever get a wild hair to just hang out with us or should you get that. into these cases you decided to research and want to pop over to our Patreon and drop that research? We would love to do a guest hosted okay. Patreon episode. Just stay in touch. We want to hear from time, you please. forever. Yes. Okay. I love it. Thank you guys. Yeah, so I kind of love so you. So. <laughs> I love you guys too. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Thank All right. Thank you so much. Good night. All right. With nothing else to say, Aaron, um, I don't think that even on the end of that, I want to plug our socials because I want to end on Molly's incredible last note. So um, just I mean, don't... I agree. I mean, if you, if you don't know where to find us on the socials by now, like you're way behind. <laughs> so don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.